0: So we're doing a two-part series called Misunderstood because um, if you guys didn't know, the theme for Westlight this year is story. God has a story that wants to be known, which means we're gonna be looking through Scripture a lot. Okay? And we're also gonna be talking about how to read Scripture and what is Scripture, but that's not happening until after the next sermon series. So that's gonna be in June. Okay, and after that, uh, we're gonna talk about how the Bible should be read and how it should be studied And so it's gonna become more like a classroom type of setting. And then after that, we're gonna test it out by going over a book together. And I've been wondering which book I should do. A lot of people said that maybe we should do Revelation. Don't worry, we won't spend the next five years going over Revelation. We're just gonna go over the main themes of Revelation so you can look forward to that in maybe July. So all that is happening in the future. But for today and next week, we're doing a two-part series called Misunderstood. Because this is, the theme for the next two weeks is this. There is a difference between what the Bible reads and what the Bible says. There's a difference between what the Bible, how the Bible reads, what, it, what you're reading on the, on the sheet of paper and what it says. And let me explain to you what that means. A lot of us, we read the passages and say, ah, it's pretty clear here that in Leviticus 14, 14 that we're not supposed to eat bats. Okay, you're like, right, so that's what it reads. But what does that actually mean? Like, what, what does that tell us about God, right? We read passages about how, you know, when you, when you get hit on one cheek, you're supposed to turn the other cheek. That's what it reads. But what is God trying to say to us through that passage? And there's a difference, and, and it's not always different, right, but every once in a while, we come across passages where it reads a certain way, but it actually means something that we wouldn't see on the surface level. And that meaning is actually called theology. Now, you guys have probably heard me use the word theology before. Theology is a study of theos, which is God, right? And so you're like, well, you know, we, we are just churchgoers. I, you know, like you scholars, you deal with the theology. We're just here to hear you talk about whatever you want to talk about, right? But here's the thing, theology is extremely important. It's important to you, and I'll tell you why. At the core of theology is the study of God. Who is God? Okay, I know a lot of churches, we, you know, our churches included, we talk about like how to have you know, boundaries in our lives, how we should pray, you know, right? But who God is affects all of those things, okay? For example, I'll give an example. If we have the image of God, right, that means the more we get to know God, the more we get to know who we are, okay? So if you believe that God is a vengeful and a wrathful God, then the way that we shape ourselves is affected by that, right? If God is the kind of God that says, you hit me, I'll strike you back, guess what? That's the kind of person we're gonna become, right? If we believe that God is a God that turns the other cheek and that he loves on people and forgives people and he's always generous, if we have that image inside of us, we need to become like that too. The more we become generous, the more we become loving, the more we're forgiving, the closer we are to God, right? So this is why it's so important to study theology because theology, tells us who our ideal is, who we're supposed to be becoming. The more we're growing in our faith, the less selfish we are, the more we're growing in our faith, the more generous we are, like all those good things, it's all dependent on our theology. So this is why it's so important to not just read the Bible for what it says or you think what it says or we think what it says, but to dig deep and find out what is it really trying to say. Okay, so with that as a like backdrop, okay, we're gonna, I'm gonna share with you the, the roadmap for today because there's a lot of things happening. As you can see, I have some props here. And uh, for some of you, this might be review, but for the other of you guys, this might be brand new. So here's the roadmap for today. So we're, start, we're gonna start today by talking about common belief, what most American churches believe about Christianity, including us. I'll, I'll give you, like, I'll be first to say, this common belief that I'm gonna talk about in a few minutes, this, is the Christianity that I said yes to. When somebody said, hey Kotz, here's what Jesus, who this is who Jesus is, this is what it means to be a Christian, do you wanna sign up, and I said yes. But over the years, what I've discovered, and you know, I, I studied, and I went to seminary, and I talked to scholars, and I read more, and I researched more, the more I dug deep into it, the more I realized, maybe this common belief is not the actual belief of Christianity. And you're like, ooh, that's like, you're setting it up. I want to know what you're talking about. Okay, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to share that common belief, and then after that, I'm going to share with you the three problems that this belief has. And after I do that, I'm going to share with you the alternative belief. Now, if you've been with us for the past few years, there's nothing new that we're going to talk about because we've been talking about this for the past several years, okay? But for those of you who are like, you know, this is new to you, it's new to you, and I'm, I'm so glad that you're here with us on this journey. Okay, so let's talk about the common belief. The common belief has a title, it's called the juridical model. Juridical model, B- basically what that means, I know this is like, okay, already, this is too much, okay. <laughs> juridical <laughs> means courtroom drama. A lot of us think about this Christianity thing as a courtroom drama, that there's God the Father who's the judge that's sitting there with a the big gavel, hand. okay, by the way, I don't know anything about this system, but right, right, and we're on trial, and we have an attorney, right, and he's protecting us, his name is Jesus, right? That's a juridical model, and maybe somebody introduced Christianity to you in this way, that you are guilty, but it's a good thing that we have a strong um, defense attorney named Jesus, and he's gonna save us, okay? So I, I don't know, did you guys, have you guys heard of this before? Yeah, yeah. thank you, Ricky. More participation, you know, be nice. Okay, so I have this chair. This is what this juridical model, um, this is what is basically teaching. I'm using these chairs, and maybe you've seen me use these chairs before. During the pandemic, I think I preached using these chairs. So some of you will be reviewing. Okay, this is how the story goes according to the juridical model. In the beginning, God created humanity. Humanity rebelled against God. And because they sinned against God, they are now sinners. When God says, I want you to do something, humanity is like, no, and they turn the other way. Because God is holy, he's just, and he's perfect, he can't look upon sin, so he also had to turn the other way. Now, eventually, as humanity wanders off, God says, I think I'm ready to come into the same room as you, right? So he comes over, he comes up over to Adam and says, what are you doing? Why are you hiding? And he's like, oh, it's because we heard you coming in the cool of the day, uh, and we did some things wrong. I think I'm naked. And he's like, who told you that you were naked? You guys know Genesis chapter three? That's what I'm trying to recreate here, okay? <laughs> but, then God, but because humanity, instead of saying, sorry, God, it was my fault, they said, no, 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 it was the woman's fault. And the woman's like, oh, it was the serpent's fault. Oh, right, they just can't take their own responsibility. So humanity, once again, rebels against God. And because God is holy, perfect, and just, he's like, I can't stand being in the same place as you. So eventually, God casts humanity out of the garden. But eventually, God God comes around and says, hey, Adam and Eve's kids, Cain. There's some uh, things I want to talk to you about. And Cain's like, whoa, but I hate my brother. And so they sin. And because God can't stand that, he also turns his back on humanity. Says, I'm sorry, I'm too good. I'm too holy, I'm too pure. I can't stand sin. Purity and sin just can't mix. I just can't be in the same place. And this pattern goes over and over, happens over, it repeats over and over and over and over again. Abraham, God says, I want to redeem this world. I want to rescue this world. This is Genesis chapter 12. And he looks to Abraham and says, how about this, we're gonna take you and your wife, Sarah, I'm going to create a contract with you. It's called a covenant. And in this covenant, what I'm going to do is you are going to have children, and those children will have more children and so forth. Eventually, you'll become a nation. And this nation is going to fix the world with me in partnership with me. How does that sound? It's like, whoa, really? Okay, sure. But what does Abraham do? He sleeps with his wife's slave and gets her pregnant. And God's like, that, that's not... My plan? My plan is for you and Sarah to have a kid. So they rebel against God. You're on the right track, but you did it wrong, you know, basically. You rebelled against me. God says, well, I can't be with you on that one. He turns his back. Let's fast forward, God named Moses. All the Israelites, the descendants of Abraham and Sarah are now slaves in Egypt. And the Pharaoh is basically killing off every single Jewish boy. And as God rescues one of the children, one of the kids, his name is Moses, he's like, I have a plan for Moses. Moses, I want you, eventually, to save the Israelites. They're slaves right now. I need you to go in there and save them. But what does Moses do instead? Early in his life, when he saw the injustice happening before his eyes, he decides, I'm going to kill one of the Egyptian guards. That's how I'm going to fight this system. And because of that, Moses runs away. And God says, I can't stand looking at that. I'm not, I'm not about murder. But eventually, God comes around and talks to Moses and says, I'm ready for another covenant. Let's make another contract. And then humanity turns their back on God. God turns their back on humanity, right? And this happens over and over and over again. We come to King David. He says, King David, you are going to be the person, you're the perfect king right now. From you, there's going to be a lineage of people that's eventually eventually come to the Messiah, Jesus. What does David do? David says, sounds good, but I'm going to go on a stroll onto the balcony and look at that lady taking a bath. He rebels against God. And after that, God says, I can't believe you did that. I can't be in the same room with you. I'm holy, I'm just, I'm pure, I cannot be with sin. And this story continues over and over and over and over again, eventually, God has the ultimate contract. The ultimate contract is this, humanity has rebelled against God, so what I'm gonna do is I'm going to send my own son into this world, Jesus. But as Jesus is trying to reach out to humanity, what happens? Humanity crucifies Jesus on the cross but it turns out this was God's plan all along because as he hung on the cross, this belief says that all of the sins from past, present, and future, all the rebuilding of humanity, all the consequences that humanity was supposed to experience is now upon Jesus hanging on the cross. And so, he is now the sinner. Jesus has become sin. And now the Father God is looking upon Jesus on the cross, just covered in sin. And because God says, Jesus, I cannot be with somebody who is sinful, dirty, unjust, I I just can't look at you anymore. And so Jesus cries these words. This is from the book of Matthew. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lema sabbatani, which means in Aramaic, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He turned his back on his own son because he had so much sin in his life. The core of this belief, this theology, this common theology that a lot of us believe in, it says this, in his perfect holiness, the Father could not stand sin, so he turned away from Jesus. But there's good news to this story, because by doing this, what's really happening is that Jesus is suffering what humanity should have suffered themselves, right? When we do something bad, we are separated from God, and Jesus, our defense attorney, is saying, I took the hit for you guys so that you don't have to experience it. And this is how the pitch the pitch goes, okay? If you believe that Jesus has done this for you, that means that he has taken the fall for you also. So you don't have to experience the wrath of God. But if you choose to reject this gift that God has given you, then that wrath is still coming to you because that's you rejecting the gift. And the reason why this is called the, the juridical model is because there's this idea that there's a judge that's saying, Katz, you are guilty because you are a sinner. And I'm gonna say, hey, I have a great defense attorney, Jesus come in here, and Jesus says, sorry buddy, I can't lie for you, you did do some really, really bad things, but this is what I can do for you. I will take your place, I will substitute you for me. So when the judge looks at me, at Kotz, right, he's gonna see, oh no, you look like you did everything right, you're Jesus, you're perfect. And so I get off scot-free while he experiences the, the wrath of the judge. This is the juridical model. Now, there are some problems with this model. So I'm going to list a few. Remember, I said I'll list three, okay? The first one, the first problem with this model is this. The substitution lacks logic. Let me explain that. It lacks logic. Let's just say my son, Justin, scratches my car. No, no, let's not do that. Let's just say the guy, no, 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 I'll still use that, but a different... The is a little different, because, okay. Let's just say Tommy down the street comes and scratches my car. And he comes up to me and says, oh, Mr. Kotze, I'm so sorry I scratched your car. What can I do? And I'm so angry, I have so much fury and wrath, I'm gonna be like, you know what? I would have slapped you. But it's okay, I did that to my son, so you're, you're off the hook. Okay, I'm just letting you know. I mean, this is what the logic is saying, right? Like, how does that make sense? And how is that loving? And it also implies that God has this wrath that he just do not know what to do with. Like, he has no self-control, right? And if you're wondering, where did this idea come from, the substitution idea come from? It comes from us about, it comes about 500 years ago from this guy named John Calvin. This man was formerly an attorney. He was a lawyer that eventually became a theologian. And when somebody asked him, how do I describe this Christian story, he used what he was familiar with, he used a juridical system and he explained it to everybody and then he started a college called in, uh, in Europe and then it spread really fast because education from his school was more affordable than the other schools. Okay, but it spread everywhere. So there's a lot of things in this in this Model that seems a bit weird if you actually break it down, right? Like, why is a substitution? How does that solve anything? God is still angry, but he's angry with the son instead of us. Like, how does that work, right? So, again, substitution lacks, lacks logic. The second mistake, the problem that we find in this model, is this: that God is controlled by anger. Can we control God? The answer should be no. But I could get God to turn his eyes away from me. Watch. I do something bad, like I'm gonna curse, or I don't know, whatever, right? I do something bad, I'm gonna hurt somebody, I'm gonna kick a puppy, or and then God's like, oh, I can't look at that, I can't be in the same room, and he turns his back. Can't God be controlled by sin? Because it seems like, in this model, whenever we do something bad, we're actually controlling God, right? Where do we get this idea from? We get it from two passages, okay, that are misunderstood. Here we go, first passage is from Habakkuk 1.13. It says this, Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. Right there, it's in the Bible, right? Like, hey, um, when I do something bad, God turns his back because his eyes are too good, it's too pure. But the problem with this passage is that we skip the second half of this passage. It's just the first half of the passage. The second half says this. So why then do you tolerate the the treacherous? He's saying, God, your eyes are so pure, you can't look upon sin. So why do you? Another passage that's often misunderstood is Isaiah 59, verse one and two. Surely the arms of the Lord is not too short to save, nor his ears too dull to hear, but your inequities have separated you from your God. Your sin has pulled you away from God. Now there's nothing in this passage that says that God's the one that's turning away. Right? What it's saying is that we have turned our backs on God, but it doesn't say anything about God turning his back on us, right? And if you read on this passage, so this is the beginning of chapter 59, if you read on, he's basically saying, you know what? Yeah, your sins have separated us from God, but guess what God is doing in response? He's rolling up his sleeves, he's willing to get his hands dirty so that we can make this relationship work again. And at the end of that chapter, this is what he says. My spirit, who is on you, he's talking to people, will not depart from you. It's always there, right? And my words that I have put in your mouth will always be on your lips from this time on and forever, forever and ever and ever. And when God says forever, he means forever, right? He says, although you may have done something to separate yourself from me, I will continue to pursue you forever. So, the second problem, God is controlled by sin, but we know that's not true. Because we believe that God is greater than our sins. Amen? All right, third problem. This model pits God the Father against God the Son. Remember that passage we read earlier in Matthew? It said Jesus is on the cross and he's like, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Did you know that Jesus was actually quoting a part of a song? You know, if I were to start a song, uh, I don't know, Um, You probably know the rest of the song without me telling you what the rest of the song is, right? This is a very common Jewish way of citing certain things from the Old Testament. So if Jesus said the first line of the song, you're supposed to know the rest of the song. And he's quoting for us Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Word for word. Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? Right? He's like... I don't see you, I don't feel you, where are you? Is it because I'm filled with sin? Oh gosh, right, I'm crying out to you and I hear nothing in response. Verse two, my God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Please answer me, God. But do you know what the context of this verse is? It's a person who's in anguish, who's being beat down, in the, in, inside of all the people in the community. And this person who's getting beat down is saying, God, why don't you answer my prayer? And everybody's mocking him. Like, oh, you're crying out to God? Oh, that's so nice. I don't hear him responding. He must've abandoned you, right? And then, then this is what he says. I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me and they hurl insults, shaking their heads. Like, these people are like, it's obvious that these bad things are happening to you, so it's obvious that God is not with you. Then the next verse, he continues his anguish. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Like, oh yeah, this is part of the mocking. Oh yeah, God delights in you, all right. Look at what all the bad things are happening to you. And so this person who, the psalmist, who eventually Jesus is basically channeling, he's saying, I feel so alone. Not only do I feel alienated from my community, I feel alienated from God, and everybody is claiming that God is not with me. But then we skip to verse 22. This is when the tone shifts in in this song. I will declare your name, God, to my people. In the assembly, I will praise you. No matter what these people say, I'm gonna continue to praise you, why? Well, let's keep reading. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of of, of Israel. Like, I'm gonna praise God even when I don't feel that he's here. And you guys should join me too. Why? This is the important part of Psalm 22. This is what Jesus was really trying to say. For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. The summary of Psalm 22 is when everything bad is happening in my life, like Jesus is being crucified, it feels like, it seems like God has abandoned us. But we know that God is right here with us, right next to us, suffering along with us. He's listening to my cry. So, let's look at the three again. Substitution lacks logic. It does lack logic, right? God is controlled by sin. We know that God's love is greater than sin. and this version of juridical model like the the judge is looking at me and jesus takes my place so it becomes father versus son it pits them against each other are they supposed to go against each other or are they supposed to work together in harmony which we read a lot about in the old testament and so we have to understand this story and in the way that was meant to be told rather than just picking verses here and there and saying Oh, this verse says this, that verse says that. It's not saying that. That's what it reads, but that's not what it says. Theology is so important, right? So God will not abandon you every time you mess up. Maybe there's been times in your life where you're like, I just did something that I promised God I would never do. I just did something that was just so wrong that I'm sure God has hidden his face from me because he's like, ooh, I just can't look at that. It's like when I watch The Office and Michael, every. I don't like the, okay, I know a lot of people like The Office. I don't like it because the sense of humor is one of those like, ooh, stop talking, please, because, all, all this, you're just embarrassing yourself. I can't even look, right? That's the image we have of God with the juridical model. But what we learn the truth is, is that God's love is always, always greater than our sin. So let me share with you the other model. This model is called the therapeutic model therapeutic because if the first one was about like a courtroom drama think of this like a hospital and i'll explain to that, you what that means in a second so in the beginning god created humanity he put his image in him he loves them right and then humanity sins he eats the fruit that he wasn't supposed to eat him and the woman they both mess up right so what does god do Because God is holy, he is pure, he is just, but love above all is the most important characteristic of God, he comes out into the garden, he doesn't turn his back on them, he comes looking for them, saying, what happened? Where are you? They start blaming each other. Eventually, Adam and Eve, they sin again. God comes looking for them again. There's a scene in the book of Genesis chapter three where God expels them from the garden, but it's not because God can't stand being with humanity. It's because there's something called the tree of life in the middle of the garden that lets them live forever. But now humanity is cursed, God doesn't want them to live forever with that curse. So he says, well you know what you need to do is you need to leave the garden because the garden is the place where you will live forever with the curse that is given to you. Death is actually a gift in this case. Eventually they have kids Cain kills Seth, oh not Seth, Cain kills Abel. God doesn't turn his back on him. God comes to Abel, I mean to Seth, to Cain, and says, be careful, sin is crouching at your door. But he does it anyways. Later on, there's Abraham. God says, I have a plan for humanity, Abraham. Through you, we're gonna create a whole nation that's gonna save the world. But instead, he decides to sleep with his wife's slave. And because of that, she gets pregnant. They all rebel against God. But what does God do in response? He goes to the child that was born that wasn't supposed to be the part of God's plan, right? And he says, I'm so sorry this happened. I'm so sorry that... Abraham and his family kicked you out of their tribe and now you're in the middle of the desert and you don't know what to do. You don't know how you're gonna survive. I promise you, I will take care of you while you're in the desert and you will also become a great nation. God goes to, to Abraham and Sarah saying, how could you make that mistake? But he says, but don't worry, go outside. Take a look at the stars. Look at the sand on the seashore. That is how many offsprings you're gonna have. My promise with you still stands. Moses, kills an Egyptian guard. God shows up in a burning bush and says, Moses, I'm not done with you yet. We're still gonna partner together and save the Israelites out of slavery. David sleeps with Bathsheba, gets her pregnant, kills her husband. God shows up and he says, out of that child, that came out of you in Bathsheba. That will be a key person in the lineage that will eventually lead to the Messiah. We go into the book of the prophets, and the prophets, basically, the people of God are totally messing up, right? You're supposed to be here to save the world, but instead, you're messing it up even more. And so God sends these, these prophets and says, hey prophets, uh, you need to give them a message. And the prophets are like, God, I think you should destroy them. These guys are just messing up. It's making you look bad, right? And God says, I would, but I can't. Even though humanity messes up so many times, you know what I think about? I think about, I think about the Israelites when they were just babies. When they're on their high chair, and I was it. here comes the airplane, you know, right? It's like, I just think about the days that they were just babes, and I can't just annihilate them. I, I love them too much eventually, God says, you know, humanity, you keep rebelling against me. It's almost like it's a condition of your heart. So he says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to send my son. I'm going to send Jesus. What does Jesus do? There's a tax collector. Taking money from people, getting rich on people's getting wealthy by by tricking their own people, what does God do? Well, Jesus, he sees one of the tax collectors on top of a tree and says, hey, today, I'm going to go to your house, and we're going to have a meal together. Jesus hears about a woman at a well. She's been divorced once, twice, three, four, five, six times, and the person she's living with right now is not her husband, in the book of John, chapter four, it says Jesus had to go through Samaria. He had to go talk to this woman, and not only does he is he there just having the time, just listening to her and talking with her. He says, "I want to offer you something like a living water. I want to give you something called eternal life." He comes across a prostitute who's caught, uh, not prostitute. He he was uh, a woman who's caught in the act of of, of adultery and all the religious rulers are there saying, we wanna stone her to death. Jesus stands between her and the religious leaders and says, if any of you have not sinned, you could be the first to throw the stone, knowing very well that Jesus was the only one who had the right to stone her, and he says, no. You're, you're safe with me. You come across demon-possessed people. Jesus, knowing that he's not supposed to touch them, he goes over there touches them and heals them. There's a foreigner, not their fault, but people don't like foreigners. Jesus shows up and says, you're part of my kingdom. He comes across cursed people, sick people. Jesus shows up, you're okay. I'm here to heal you, you are part of my family. Your sin is never greater than my love for you. And eventually humanity kept on rebelling And Jesus kept on reaching out to them, rebelling, reaching out. Eventually, all this rebelling led them to death. And Jesus said, you think you could get away with me from death, right? I will go to the grave with you. So he hung on the cross and he died. This is a therapeutic model because deep down inside of this, this belief, this model, is that humanity has a disease. A disease that just makes our hearts, we just have this propensity to just rebel against what is good and what is God. And Jesus dies on the cross to become the great physician that can heal our hearts, so that we, our hearts will be fixed to chase after the things that are of God. And then Jesus, on the third day, comes back to life again, with the keys to Hades. And in doing so, he is setting all people free with his love. The core of this model is this, that God loves you so much that he will never give up on you. Never give up on you. And not only that, God wants to heal us of our rebellion-bounded hearts, right? He's like, I'm not just doing this because I'm a jealous God. I'm doing this because every time you turn away from me, it leads to your destruction, and I wanna keep you away from that destruction, so I'm gonna keep chasing after you because I love you. I will never give up on you. So the question here is this. Do you feel far from God? Have you done something that made you feel like, there's no way that God's gonna love me after this? Have you been in a situation where you felt like, I can't even go to church, I can't, look at the people in the eye in church because I know that I'm the worst sinner in this this house. Jesus would say, that's not how this thing works. If the church is really the body of Christ, we should be a community of people who's always striving to become people who look at people with the eyes of love rather than the eyes of judgment because that's who Jesus is, that's who God is, and that's who we're supposed to be becoming every day of our lives. Our sin does not turn God away. Our sin turns us away from God and God, I did the wrong way, huh? There we go. (laughs) And God is not too far behind. He wants to be there because he seeks a relationship with you. A lot of times I think we think in terms of guilt, right? And it's part of being a human. We, we feel and carry with us guilt, heavy guilt. Jesus is here to alleviate that guilt from you. He says his yoke is light. He's here to set you free. There's nothing you could do that could keep you away from the love of God. Amen? Amen. This is good news, right? Yeah. All right. Um, I think we should do, do you guys want to do a Q&R? Okay. If you have any questions, including people who are online, feel free to send your send uh, your your questions because uh, I think we have question time for about two or three questions. Will this be on the test? <laughs> That's a good question. Will this be on the test? Yes. No, no. No. This is just a learning environment and I just want to make sure that um that any questions you guys might have, I just want because I think a lot of times, in my mind I'm making sense, but it might not be coming across that way, so I wanna make sure you guys understand, or if you have questions. I do. Yes. It looks like sometimes, it looks like in your scenario that he's a punishing God. Mm. But we all know that he's not. Right, yeah. So Bill said, uh, so in, in some of these scenarios, God seems like a punisher, a punishing God. In a juridical model, The father acts as the punisher, as the judge, right? So it's basically God knows that he's the one that keeps all things together. And so when we sin, and in the juridical model, he also turns his back on us. By turning his back on us, he knows that we are gonna wither, right? So not only is he saying, I can't be with you, and by me turning away, I'm also taking away the source of life from you, also, right? Um, But... I think a lot of people who read the Old Testament, they might see that characteristic a lot. But um, there's a few words in the Old Testament that we have to understand. One of them is the word wrath. When in the Old Testament, uh, the, the writers, when they talk about the word wrath, they're not talking about like what we imagine in our Western American culture where, it's like you do something bad, lightning bolt, you know, right? Wrath in the Old Testament is basically, you are bringing destruction upon yourself, right? And what God is doing is, I will help accelerate that. And that's what wrath is. It's something that's brought upon yourself that God is saying, I'm gonna let that happen. So uh, every time, like uh, the flood in Genesis chapter six, the way that most scholars read it now is that like, God is not like, I need to destroy everything on this earth. Instead, it's you're destroying yourselves already. This is where it's headed. So let me just accelerate that by sending a flood. So it's still uh, an act of, it's not an act of, like vengeance or punishment. So I hope that makes sense. But what we discover is that in the Genesis chapter three story where God casts Adam and Eve out of the garden, their life was headed, towards death, was headed towards death already. So God says, if you wanna accelerate that, then here, step outside of the realm of life and then it'll accelerate that process. Um, and I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where you feel like I don't think I've been good enough for God. Like at the end of my life, I wonder if God, God will look at me and say, God, so you could've done better. Like there's some kind of shame attached to the end of my story, right? Or maybe, because um, I'll tell you this, because this is something that somebody preached at me once. He said, at the end of your life, an angel's gonna bring out a projector, because you know they don't use TVs up there, I guess, and they're gonna replay all the sin in your life eventually reminding you that you don't belong here. And then Jesus shows up and says, okay, let's wipe that away, welcome into heaven. And I'm like, I don't think that's how it works, right? God doesn't care, and you know, one thing I really love about Pastor Lori is that she always says, thank you for being you. God cares about you more than what you've done, right? All he cares about is being with you. So, um, it seems inconsistent with God's character to judge us for the things we've, like, for the worst things we've done in our lives because he cares more about who we are you know, than what we've done, right? Um, the book of Hebrews talks about a lot of times we carry with us the guilt that God did not place there in the first place. And in the book of Hebrews it talks about this sacrificial system, how we have to kill animals in the Old Testament. And he says, do you guys realize that God doesn't need your sacrifices? Like the, the God of the world, right? He's like, oh, you need to kill a few sheep for me because otherwise I just don't feel like I want to hang out with you. Like, Writer Hebrews basically says, that was for you. Like all the rituals in the Old Testament, that was for you because you can't let go of the guilt that you carry with you. God's always been okay with you, you know? So um, I think a lot of times when we read the Old Testament writers, we think in terms of God is wrathful, vengeful, angry, but mostly it's more of a reflection of us and the weight that we carry with us. Yes. Uh, you had me- you mentioned that uh, this, this model, this therapeutic model might be more like a hospital. Yes. Did you talk about that at all, or did mi- Oh, yeah, okay, I, I, yeah. I, I, yeah, okay. So the question, for those of you online, uh, the question is the therapeutic model is supposed to be more like a hospital than a courtroom setting. Uh, I'll, I'll speak more to that. Um, so the, the core issue with the therapeutic model is that the problem is not that we're guilty, the problem is that we're sick. So if if the problem is that we're guilty, then we need a good defense attorney. That solves our problems. If the main issue is that we're sick, then we need the great physician, right? The problem is that our hearts are always attuned to doing the wrong things. Especially when you're in survival mode, you feel like I need to just look out for me and nobody else, and by doing that, we leave other people to dry and, you know, and we place ourselves above other people. We think our lives are more important than the lives of the people around us. If you want to think globally, then you could say my country is more important than the other countries. If it means that we could live comfortably here, then, then who cares what happens to that country over there, right? Or even com- if you look at our neighborhood, we tend to say my neighborhood is more important than that neighborhood. If they suffer and we gain out of that, then who cares, right? Or you can even look at gender and say, this gender, this, you know, being a man is more important than being a woman, or being straight is more important than being gay, right? Like, we start doing these things that starts to destroy the world that God is trying to create, and um, so the therapeutic model basically says, Jesus, come into my heart and heal the broken parts of my heart because my inclination is always to rebel against the ideals that you set for us, right? So that's, so the, and it's not like you're healed. It's this continual process of God bringing up sin in your life and saying, now let's work on this. And once we dealt with that, you'll probably be dealing with it for the rest of your life. Here's another thing in your life. Here's a prejudice that you probably didn't even know you had, you know, let's work on that. So that's what the therapeutic model is, that God is a, is, is more known as a, a great physician than a a a courtroom defense attorney. Yeah. So God's model to me is that he's the great therapist. The great therapist, the great been- therapist sure. A lot of times we don't think we need the hospital because we we can't see where our sin is. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah I mean uh, whatever uh, just keep in mind that these are um, metaphors that people came up with the therapeutic model came out before psychology was a thing actually this people argue that the therapeutic model is the one that's been the longest prevailing one for the past 2,000 years whereas the the juridical model that most americans believe in came around 500 years ago right so if you think about like did they have therapists two thousand years ago? I don't know. But we could update the illustration with whatever works for you. Yeah. So good 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 comment and question, yeah.